This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Discover, something brighter. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Best-selling author Mitch Album joins Washington Post Live to discuss his charitable work aimed at ramping up coronavirus testing, improving vaccine access, and helping families hardest hit by the pandemic. Album will also discuss his latest book and how art can be a powerful tool for healing and instilling hope in people's hearts. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. Today, we're continuing our Optimist series, featuring conversations that aim to inspire and inform as the pandemic continues to test us. My guest today is Mitch Album, the best-selling author who's devoted much energy in the past few years to recovery projects in both Haiti and Detroit. A very warm welcome to Washington Post Live, Mitch. Thanks, Francis. Well, Mitch, let's start by talking about the pandemic. Um, I'm thinking about a piece you wrote in February in the Detroit Free Press, echoing President Biden when he talked about a dark winter and saying how much we had been kept in the dark, in your view. Now that about 50% of American adults have been vaccinated, do you feel as if we're coming out of the dark? Are you any more optimistic? Well, I was always optimistic. I, I mean, I, I think you mentioned in the uh, open about working in Haiti uh, with an orphanage. And I think when you do that on a monthly basis uh, for now 11 going on 12 years, you would learn to be optimistic uh, about everything. You can't survive otherwise. And so I always thought we would come through this. I knew our science was good. and, and uh, it seems more now uh, an issue of, you know, people sort of accepting what they want to do going forward. And, and, you know, I don't think just this vaccine is going to be the end of it. I think there's going to be booster vaccines and things like that. And we'll have to come to an equilibrium where people are respect people's individual rights, but we also respect uh, the need to participate in society. But I do think the dark winter has, has, has passed. We have a, we have a, a, a parent answer for it in the form of this vaccine. I'm hoping that we'll figure out a way to get the rest of the world on board with that too, because I go down to Haiti and there's not, there's not a smidge of a vaccine there anywhere. And uh, we've been on lockdown in our orphanage for a year and a half out of fear of this, you know, coming in and spreading right through our population. So, you know, I think I've been blessed to be able to see it from a bunch of different angles. And I think as far as America is concerned, we have reason to be optimistic. Well, tell me a little bit about the work you've been doing through, say, Detroit, about your own city and the hardships you have experienced there and how you have tried to address them. I came to Detroit in 1985, uh, so I've been here a long time. And, uh, you know, Detroit is a pretty hard hit city. And especially during economic downturns, we tend to take it on the chin quite a bit. Um, I started my first charity when I was here after a few years and after writing Tuesdays with Maury. Um, and sort of being guilted into uh, doing more for society by my old professor than I had been doing before, I kind of went full bore into it. I formed a thing called uh, Say Detroit in, in 2006 after, uh, ironically, we had the Super Bowl here, and I had read that there was going to be a party for the homeless for the Super Bowl. I didn't know what that meant, a party for the homeless, and so I, I went down and explored it, and it turned out it was a euphemism for getting all the homeless off the street so that they wouldn't bother the customers and putting them into this one big center where there was a television set and then on Monday morning kicking them back out into the snow. And I thought that was pretty cruel. And so I went down and wrote a, I spent a night at the homeless shelter, uh, 
not pretending to be anybody other than I was. I just wanted to write about the experience, and this isn't something that you, you know, t give to people and then take away. And while I was online for the meal, you know, I got my bed and my blanket and my bar of soap and all that. And then I was online for the meal, and this guy in front of me turned around and he looked me up and down and he said, "Aren't you Mitch Album?" And I said, "Yeah." And then he looked me up and down again. He said, so what happened to you? And uh, that was a really important moment in my life, even though I laughed when it happened. But I realized that he had every right to ask me that question. And, uh, you know, if not for the grace of God, it could have been me. And in the years like 2006, 7, 8, 9, going through the real estate crisis, uh, there were a lot of people who never thought they'd be on those lines that suddenly found themselves there. And so I wrote a column about it and uh, I tried to raise enough money to um, keep everybody who was in those shelters for the Super Bowl in them for at least another three months until the weather warmed up. And I needed to get $60,000. And um, I ended up getting $320,000 in a week just from people sending in five and $10 donations because they were moved by the same thing I was. And so I used that to create Say Detroit, which is, stands for Super All Year Detroit instead of Super for One Weekend. And uh, we've grown from that into an organization that umbrellas uh, nine separate charitable operations. We have a daycare center for children as young as five days old whose mothers and or parents are, are going through treatment or homelessness. And so they have no place to put their kids if they're trying to get a job uh, to uh, the nation's first medical clinic for homeless children, which used to be a huge problem here in Detroit, because if you took homeless children to a hospital for medical care, uh, you know, emergency room, they would ask for an address. And if you didn't have an address or you lived at a shelter, they would call social services and take the kids away. And so consequently, nobody who was homeless ever brought their kids in for medical care because they were afraid they would lose them. So we created this uh, clinic that asked no questions and became the first in the country to do that. It's still going strong, now takes care of the entire population. We have a big rec center, an after-school rec center for 300 kids that does everything from football, baseball, basketball, uh, soccer and the rest to a digital learning center with computers and a reporting studio and things like that and many, many other programs. And it's a multi-million dollar operation now that grew from that one column. And uh, I spend more than half of my work week on, on that and, and Haiti. And, and then I spend the rest of it trying to write books. Mitch. Um, one of your recent radiothons raised an awful lot more money. It was, I think it was $1.5 million. What does that huge outpouring tell you both about the needs of the community and the community that you've got to know so well, and also the generosity of people who are donating? Well, put an asterisk on that $1.5 million. It came in December of last year, which was in the big thick of the mm -hmm. pandemic. So the fact that we were able to raise that much money in one day, uh, to me, it speaks to Michigan. Uh, I mean, I'm very proud of this state. I'm very proud of the people who live here. It's a, it's a blue collar kind of place. And yet when it comes to giving, it's, it's, it's the gold standard. I mean, I've, I've never seen people so generous, people who will write you notes and saying, I'm on disability or I'm on social security, so I can only afford to give you this, but please take this. You know, I mean, it will come with almost an apology. And these are people who can, can hardly afford to give any money away. And yet they make up a huge part of, of that 1.5 million. And that was a lot of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of phone calls uh, from people just, you know, making donations, knowing that somebody always had it worse. And I, I think that that's what we, we kind of live by here in Michigan, that 
you know, we, we have Detroit and we have Flint and, uh, you know, and yet we have other Grand Rapids and, and, and Bloomfield Hills and places that are doing well. And I think people are well aware of how short a distance it is from doing well to not doing well. You know, uh, here in Detroit and here where I live, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I, you know, I've, I've worked hard and I live out in a, in a, in a, in a comfortable suburb. But 20 minutes is all it takes for me to go to, to some of the worst poverty in the United States, maybe sometimes less than that. And so um, I think we're all just acutely aware of how responsible we need to be for one another. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud to live in this state and in this city. So Mitch, one of the things that the, the pandemic has highlighted almost more than anything else is these huge socioeconomic, racial and ethnic divides um, that you're talking about. Do you feel now as if Detroit is about to bounce back? Well, uh, you know, time will tell. Uh, we, we took a big hit uh, on this. It, the shame of it was that Detroit really had bounced back just before this pandemic hit. I mean, it was apartments were impossible to get. And, you know, that might sound normal in Washington but around here. I mean, you know, for years you could give away. You know, there was, there was a, not that long ago, the average house price in Detroit was $7,000 so uh, it, it, or the median. And so uh, to have suddenly demand and office buildings going up and, and, and restaurants and recreation places and, 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 and clubs and everything, you know, just burgeoning was fantastic. And then this came and a lot of those restaurants went out of business. A lot of people decided I'm not going to work downtown and you know, we kind of got knocked over like a wave. And, uh, you know, if you're ever in the ocean and you think you're doing fine and then a big wave comes along and knocks you back on your butt, you have to get up and walk back into the water. That's sort of where we are here again. Uh, I know that our resilience will address that, but I can't really say how quickly we will rebound. Um, it's it's going to take some effort. But fortunately, you know, Detroit, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of the division uh, certainly not in the protest types of things or anything like that that other major cities in America did. And I, I'm very proud of that here in Detroit, too. You know, race relations are, are, are a challenge everywhere in the country. But I think in Detroit, you know, we've been through a lot. You know, we've been through uh, cities burning down uh, several times already. And our police chief was very smart about it. Our people were very smart about it. And um, I think we came through that with some shining colors and, uh, and, and, and that helps in terms of the, uh, we're not facing the challenge that some cities are after last year in terms of trying to attract people to come back down. It's just a question of, of uh, the businesses having money to operate. So I'm remembering it really is only eight years since Detroit filed for chapter nine bankruptcy, right? So that was the biggest bankruptcy I think in a, in a US city ever. Yeah, yeah. Took a long time to come out of that. That's why I say it wasn't that long ago that to, to get a house in Detroit for seven thousand dollars. So we're out of that. We have very good mayor, good police chief. He just he just was uh, retired. I think he's going to run for governor. Uh, but um, you know we have good leadership and uh, you know and 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 great people. And uh, the people of Detroit are, are are fantastic, and so is our city. So I have confidence we'll get through. It's just going to. This was like I said, wave knocks you down. But if you've ever been a kid at the beach. You get right back up, back into the water, and that's what we're going to do. 
So in some of your books, Tuesdays with Mari and others, you talk about the inherent goodness in people. How do you tap into that? Do you feel you can tap into that on a sort of national scale? Oh, 100 uh, percent. I'm uh, <laughs> it's funny. It may have been somebody from The Washington Post. I don't know. But so, some critic uh, in my over the course of my career uh, was making fun of my books or my writing style or something and called me in, in a, in a pejorative way, the king of hope. Uh, and I always thought, like, how is that a bad thing? Um, I'll take that. If that's an insult, I'll take the insult. And I've always tried to uh, infuse my books with that. And I have found, to the tunes of millions of readers, that there are people who want exactly that message. Uh, they don't want everything to be dark and cynical. They don't want everything to have a have an unhappy ending and tough because that's what life really is. Because that isn't what life really is. Life is full of hope. And, uh, you know, I always rail against the, the, the derogatory sense of the word sentimental. You know, it's become this negative word. The worst thing that you could be called in the world in, the, in, in literary circles is sentimental or your books are sentimental or sentimentality. And yet, you know, I see that people, when they take their wallets out, the first thing they have is a picture of their children in there, you know, or if you ask them what their favorite song is, it'll be the song that they, you know, met their wife to or their husband to or whatever. We're, we're, we're full of sentimentality. We enjoy it everywhere, except apparently when it comes to criticizing other people's work. And so I've been fooled by that. I, I think that emotions and hope and, and, and inspiration are just as real and just as important to write about as uh, gloom and angst and navel gaze and so um i just chose you know, the course of my career to focus my stories on that i you know a lot of it comes out of having dealt with a lot of awful things and negativity you know i 25 years apart i watched an old man die in front of me and a young child die in front of me and you know one was my beloved professor and one was my daughter adopted daughter and um you know, you can either choose to just see the world as all gloom, uh, but I think I learned from Maury early on that, you know, he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and, and he was, he couldn't move, he couldn't, he had to be lifted out of a chair, he had to have someone wipe his rear end, and yet he was eminently upbeat and positive and, and still looking to his dying day to the, to the positivity of people and the goodness of people. And I thought if he could do that in a, in a chair where he can't move and I would have to turn his head just to have him look at me and carry him to the commode and back, then I certainly, with health and, 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 and so much, so many blessings, I can certainly be optimistic and try to be inspiring to people too. You talked earlier on about this tension or this or finding this balance between individuality and communitarianism or, or sort of more shared approach to a common future. How do you see that progressing and how do you see us coming out of this pandemic, having learned some of the lessons of, 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 of finding that balance? Well, I think the pandemic uh, in particular has taught us the interconnectivity of, of a society. If we didn't know it, it's very easy in America, especially to live in your own world. You can be on your own device, you can send out your own messages, you can create your own identity, you can make up an identity, you don't even have to be yourself, you, you, don't, you can order everything online, you don't have to interact with anybody. But all of a sudden, when it came to this pandemic, we were all making each other sick. 
you know, I wrote it, one of my early columns was, you know, we've seen the enemy, the enemy is, is us, you know, essentially. We, 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 the, the disease doesn't fly through the air and come down your chimney. It, it, it spreads from one person to another. So that whole interconnectivity was really brought home. And I think the solution is also the same thing, that we need to watch out for one another. We need to create a vaccinated society. Uh, where where we can be safe for one another. But in the interim, we're wearing masks and we're social distancing and we all have to do it with one another or it doesn't work. Again, I bring back the fact that I, you know, I work in Haiti, I'm there every month. And so I see the other side of connectivity where people live out in the street and there's no such thing as isolation. And you, 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 you have to rely on one another sometimes for bread or for water or for or for a, you know a, a couple of good or, or something to, to borrow something. There's no way you just go off and live by yourself there, and and so and as, of course in an orphanage, you know it's 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 a uh, it's an exercise in connectivity. So I see that that exists inside human beings. I think it's more of a challenge in America because we do make it so easy to live apart. But um, I think that this this virus has taught us that you don't we we get into things collectively and we're going to have to collectively get out of them. And I do see a lot of that spirit. I know there's a lot of emphasis on who's not getting vaccinated, but I mean, we've had, you know, what, 100, 150 million people or more than that have. That's a, that's a lot of people doing the same thing. Uh, and so I try to concentrate on, on, you know, the good part of it. There's always going to be detractions from it, but there's a lot of good going on as well. I'd love to ask you a little bit about about the creative process. You decided to write Human Touch to fundraise uh, for Detroit during the pandemic, and you wrote it in real time, chapter by chapter. Could you tell us a little bit about that process, um, how it developed, and 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 what made you think that was the right way to go about fundraising? Well, first of all, the first thing I'll say about that process to any writers out there: don't do it. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, uh, trying to write a novel a week at a time and staying one week ahead of its publication is torturous. And I lasted eight weeks. It was like being on a bull, you know, in a bull riding contest. And then it was like, OK, I got to end this thing because I can't I can't keep this chase up. But it was necessary. And the reason that I did it was, you know, our city was really I mean, we, we, we were the worst in America for a stretch of time. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. You know, obviously we have a, a large uh, poor population. We have a lot of people who live in intergenerational homes. There's a lot of grandparents living with grandkids, living with aunts and uncles and all the rest. Transportation was a huge issue and people couldn't get out and get tested and, uh, and just the availability of information. It was really bad. And, and, and you know, and I love my city and, and I wanted to try to help out. And, and I, I gave of my own money. I gave of our own organization's time and efforts, but we needed more. And I thought, well, what's the one thing that I have that I can give that can maybe raise some money quickly? And that was my my writing. You know, I'm blessed to have a, 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 a sizable audience of people who read my books. And so I decided, let me put a book together um, and give it away for free. There was some talk about maybe charging a dollar or two dollars. But I said, no, you know what? I I told the publishers and, and Audible who helped us with the, uh, the audiobook. I said, I trust people. Just tell them it's for free in exchange for a donation. And I believe the people will come through and we'll just rely. And I said, well, what if they don't donate anything? I said, well, then the next person will donate something. And so I wrote a story about four 
a street corner. I had this idea in my head, and I live in a you know kind of a small town here in Michigan. And I wrote a I wrote a, a story about a small town in Michigan and a street corner that had four houses on the four corners, and uh, in each house was you know a, a different family with a different set of circumstances. One was a, a doctor and was in the thick of this whole thing, and one was a Chinese American family, and and one was a uh, had a Haitian. Uh, member of the family with a little boy and one was an older businessman person and so all the different elements that came into play in the pandemic were represented on these four corners and I, I i did it in real time of sort of like as the disease was progressing how it affected their camaraderie and how they used to all get together and at each other's houses every weekend and the kids would play and how that slowly started to get pulled apart and and, and suddenly they didn't trust one another and 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 there were some actions taken against the Chinese American family because of the virus. And, and I just sort of, you know, followed the characters. And of course it, it was hopeful because it is something that I wrote and the little boy, um, uh, young Haitian boy, it was actually the key to everything. He had sort of, uh, something in his blood that made him immune to this disease and uh, they didn't figure it out at first, but they figured it out towards the end. And, uh, and, and so we put it up, and we just asked for donations and we ended up raising, I said, I mean, it's still going on, but I mean, we ended up raising close to a million dollars. Uh, and, and, and a lot of that was just, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks. It was no minimum, um, two bucks, one buck. And, uh, and I, I was proven correct that the, you know, the inherent good in people, when they realize you're trying to do good, it can be contagious. And, and so we took all that money, 100% of it. And we opened up the first testing center in Detroit that you could walk up to. There was only one for a stretch of time. You had to drive and it was way in the north part of the city. Well, many people in our city don't drive. They don't have a car. So how are they going to get tested? And then we turned it into a vaccination center, which we're still operating today. And we did all kinds of things with PPE and, and food delivery to seniors and, and opening homeless shelters to take the overload of people who had COVID-19. Where were they going to go? So we created shelters, helped fund them where they would go. So it was a success. But as a creative process, it's very hard, <laughs> very, very hard. Well, I'd actually like to ask you a broader question about the creative process um, after or during a disaster. Clearly, it can be a bomb, um, but it's not. it can be controversial. I'm thinking back to 9-11 and some of the photographs after then that people saw as exploiting a disaster. Where, do, where does art and entertainment fit in our efforts to overcome and manage a disaster such as we've been through in the past year? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with time. You know, if someone were to make a 9-11 film now or a novel now, it would be received quite differently than if they tried to do it in 2002. And I'm sure the same holds for, for this. Uh, you know, that's why it was interesting to write about a virus that was still going on in a fictional form. Uh, that's why I thought it was really important to have hope in it because to just write about it and, and, and have it, you know, an, an Armageddon, an end of the world situation, how is that going to help matters? And I could see that being rejected and, and, and nobody embracing that. What people embraced in, in human touch was the positivity, was that there was going to be an end to this. And, uh, you know, I, I just think, honestly, Francis, it's probably sensitivity, time, and the angle that you, you take on it. I, I do think all things, all real tragedies in time find their way into our art. Um, you know, from the world wars that we've had, look at how many you know, novels, movies, uh, documentaries, everything 
have come out of, of, of those and, and uh, even some of the later conflicts. Um, and I'm sure they will out of this too, but it, it requires a sensitivity. And I think readers have to believe that you're not exploiting. You're not figuring, oh, this will sell, you know, so I'll put that out there because you know, people are raw and you have to recognize that when anything like that, any tragedy like that, when people are lost, lives are lost, you can't be just cavalier about, well, I don't care, lives are lost, I'm, I'm doing something for my art. Uh, and I think the pieces that show that sensitivity are the ones that succeed. You've mentioned the orphanage in Haiti and your adopted daughter. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time uh, reading through Finding Chica. Tell us about that story and what it meant to you and how you decided to make her very tragic story part of another text. Well, that she was the biggest uh, blessing we've ever had in our lives. So Chica John was born three days before the actual earthquake in Haiti, three days. And on the third day of her life, her, the little structure that she was living in, cinder block, collapsed around her and her mother. But the roof was just made of tin, so it fell backwards. The walls fell to the side, and she was left on the bed looking at, at the heavens. And I think right then, God determined that this was going to be a pretty tough kid. And uh, she slept that night out in the sugarcane fields in a bed of leaves and uh, did that for months. Her mother died two years later, giving birth to her baby brother. She didn't need to die, but there's never a doctor present when poor women give birth out in the provinces and, and uh, something went wrong and the midwife couldn't handle it and she bled to death in the same bed where the baby was born. And so Chica became an orphan that day uh, and was brought to us shortly thereafter. She was a bossy, pushy, loud kid, very, very funny told all the other kids where they could, when they could go to the bathroom, who could use the soccer ball, bossing everybody around. She was the smallest one. And uh, she went on like that for several years. And then one day her face started to droop, you know, her eye and her mouth. And long and short of it was, uh, we got a, an MRI in the one place they have an MRI in the whole country. And they gave us a one sentence report that said, this child has something on her brain and whatever it is, there's nobody in Haiti who can help. That was the prognosis. And so we brought her to America thinking that, well, American medicine will take care of this and we'll get her back to the orphanage in a matter of weeks or months. And she never went home. Uh, she became our daughter and we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for what she had, which was DIPG, which is a four letter word for death. Nobody survives. It usually takes a child in about four or five months. She could live two years, which was remarkable. And during those two years, we became a family. Uh, my wife and I never had children of our own. We married kind of late and uh, you know, our kids in Haiti are kind of our kids, but this was here, it was a five-year-old sleeping at the base of our bed. And uh, she was remarkable in every way and taught me an amazing amount of lessons. The, the most important one uh, I would tell you is that uh, one day towards the end when she couldn't walk anymore, which is one of the debilitating things of the disease, I would have to carry her from place to place. I was her own personal taxi service, you know, pick her up, take her to the bed, take her to the bathroom, take her to the car, whatever. And she was perfectly fine with that. And um, we were coloring upstairs here in the house. And uh, I looked at my watch. I realized I was late for this radio show. And I popped up and I said, Chica, I got to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, stay in color. I said, Chica, I have to work. She said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. And I said, well, it's not the same thing because this is my job. And she crossed her arms like that. And she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. And uh, I was just wiped out, you know, when she said that. I mean, I laughed and cried internally at the same time because, of course, she was right. 
and my job was carrying her and all of our jobs is to carry our children. Um, and if you have the opportunity and carry the children of the world who are forgotten and, and sick and, and left behind as many of our orphans are. And so it was the best job I ever had. And she taught me, you know, that what you fill your arms with kind of defines who you are. And for many years, I, I filled my arms and carried around my work and my books and my accomplishments and my money and whatever. And, and then all of a sudden, all that was gone and carrying around a five, six and seven year old child um, because she can't walk. So I wanted to write about that, but I also didn't want to write a book that would scare people. Um, and I wanted to give money and create a fund to help our kids in case any of them ever had another medical emergency. So all the money from finding Chica went into something called the Chica Fund. And so then it was a challenge of just how to write the book. And so I decided, since I'm sitting right in the place where I wrote Finding Chica, and I'm sitting right in the place where I wrote all the time that Chica was with us, and in the mornings I would bring her down with me because my wife would sleep in because she took care of her later in the day. So Chica would come and she'd sit right next to me where I am here, on the floor, and I said, Chica, this is what Mr. Mitch writes his book, so just have to be quiet. You can play and whatever. Okay, okay. And, 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 and 10 seconds would go by, and she'd say, can I have a piece of paper? And I'd say, okay, here's a piece of paper. Now, remember, we got to keep quiet. Okay. Can I have a magic marker? <laughs> and it would just go on. And she was always stuck in it, and I loved it. And so I set the book where she was already back, you know, so you know on the very first page that she passed away, but that she comes back and visits with me here, which she does when I close my eyes all the time and talks to me and says, well, if you're going to write a book, why don't you write a book about me? You know, and, uh, and so I do. And the whole book is sort of just this conversation with her about how she came into our lives and how we made a family. And I tried to put it as upbeat and positive as it could be. So there's no horror at the end. You know, you know what's going to happen. And to me, that's the best book I've ever written. And I know that's sacrilege for Tuesdays with Maury fans. And I'm very proud of Tuesdays with Maury and the five people you meet in heaven. And, and the books that are favorites of people. Um, but you want to feel that you get better as a writer as you get older. And, uh, and I threw myself into that book. I became physically ill at the end of it uh, from doing so. But it's, to me, it's the most important story I can tell. And it's a universal story about families and how there's lots of ways to make a family, but uh, there's no wrong way. And uh, that's the message I wanted to get across. Well, that's a powerful message. I'm sorry we've run out of time. It's a powerful message to leave us with and how to make a family and, and that wonderful, resilient little girl you were with. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mitch. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you also to our guests. Washington Post Live will be back tomorrow at 1.30 when my colleague Michelle Norris will be talking to the Academy Award winning filmmaker Barry Jenkins about his series, The Underground Railroad. Don't miss that. I'm Francis Deed Sellers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.